Welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast, your go-to source for professional insights in the long-term care industry. Hear from leaders and experts as they share current and practical insights to help make the most of your day. I've been a long-term care financial specialist. What that means is I help people plan for the inevitable. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to think about getting old, but it's possible that someday we might need a little bit of care. Here's your host, nursing home administrator turned podcaster, Shmuel Septimus. Welcome back, those of you watching this on LinkedIn, those of you watching this on Facebook. Um, we are doing another live broadcast, first of two for today, uh, for the Nursing Home Podcast. So... Today is a very exciting episode. Um, we all know the challenges of coronavirus, COVID-19, however you refer to it, and how it's wreaking havoc and in the nursing home world. And then how once it comes in, it's devastating the result of the effects and the destruction that it leaves in its wake. And everyone kind of feels a little bit helpless besides for some of the technical challenges and lack of equipment and all those other things that we've discussed and will discuss in further episodes. But also no one knows what to do. There's no antidotes. There's no vaccine. There's no medicine. There, there's still talks about different things. But at the end of the day, to date, we still do not have a clear solution, which is why, if you may notice, that uh, we are bringing back Shalom uh, Ryman of Megadata back to the podcast for the third time, actually. And I've actually have never done that before. And let me, just before we even I hand over the mic to Shalom, I want to kind of paint the trajectory of how this conversation happened. If you remember, the first episode that we had was introducing mega data to the world of nursing homes and explaining how you're already tracking this information. You're mandated to have electronic health records. This is something that you're doing anyway. Now you have the opportunity you have the opportunity and the ability to dig into that data and pull out actionable uh, plans uh, real actions um, out of there. Sean came back more recently uh, a few weeks ago specifically um, offering tools to the nursing home operators to help them with coronavirus and we spoke about that in that episode we'll link up to that in the show notes as well. Today is really exciting because today, we have a discovery which can potentially dramatically change the way nursing homes respond to and predict the coronavirus in their residents. And literally, I know it sounds like a cliche, but this literally will help save more lives. So with no further ado, Shalom, this is something that is, uh, this is nothing short of a massive public service message. Welcome and thank you for taking some time. I know you're busy talking to the media and other outlets today and I'm sure in the coming days as well. Thank you for joining us for a few minutes on the Nursing Home Podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Shmuel. Thanks for having me again. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I'll start by just giving a little background on on what we discovered. Um, first of all, uh, just to give a little timeline, on March 13th, CMS required that every nursing home take uh, temperatures of every resident and monitor the resident, uh, the residents for respiratory symptoms. Um, that being said, we immediately shifted the focus of our development team 
at Megadata and work to create uh, reporting for our clients that can help them track uh, the temperatures on a daily basis in real time. You know, some of my clients are managing multiple nursing homes. So, you know, the clinical people on a regional level, uh, you know, want to know what's going on on the ground. The facilities want to know who, who should uh, we check. We put in like compliance checks to make sure every resident had their temperature taken. Um, and we also, you know, obviously flagged who had high temperatures. And the hope was, at least, you know, what I was hoping was that we can go ahead and prevent outbreaks by monitoring these symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, over time, over the last few weeks, what we found is that the outbreaks are happening anyway. Uh, we have these tools in place and, um, you know, the outbreaks are happening. They're coming into the building. Um, they're monitoring the temperatures. They're monitoring the symptoms. But by the time, you know, the residents start to flag, you know, the outbreak has already started. Um, now I went back to study the data and more of a high level instead of, you know, the, just the daily numbers. And, you know, we looked at, let's say, for an example, one building, you'll have uh, two, two residents with a temperature one day, the next mm -hmm. day 10, and the next day it's 30 or 40. What that means, and, you know, and obviously everybody knows that uh, coronavirus patients are typically asymptomatic for a while and are contagious earlier. That means that before the temperature check started flagging, um, the coronavirus was already widespread in the building. So, you know, it's, it might be helpful to know, okay, we have these problems and, you know, let's manage the outbreak. But what was not, what we were not able to do, it seems, was to actually prevent the outbreak with these temperature checks and symptoms checks. Mm -hmm. So one second, just so I understand and so everyone else understands, basically from, by the time you were able to see a significant jump in residents with uh, higher than usual fevers, it was ready too late. Correct. Okay, fine, keep it going. And, and, you know, this became like a challenge is like, how do we figure out how to get ahead of this? You know, and I spoke to many of my clients about, you know, is this temperature checks and symptom checks helping you get ahead of it? Or it's just, you know, is it preventing the outbreak? And they were not really, you know, the, the outbreak just comes and, you know, I think, they were doing they are doing their very best to stay on top of it and deal with the residents and isolate them and divert the ppe to where the outbreaks are but this data analysis was not working as a means to prevent the outbreak from happening mm -hmm. um so you know and and so we were studying the data and trying to figure out uh, a way that we could to detect the outbreak earlier. So then uh, a friend of mine, Zish Margulis, shared this article from the New York Times, um, written by Dr. Richard Levitan. The, the, the article was titled, The Infection That's Silently Killing Coronavirus Patients. And this article is just a fascinating article in which he describes how the COVID uh, pneumonia related to COVID-19 develops. Now I'll share with you some quotes from his article, which I just found really fascinating. Um, the first here, so he says, I realized that we are not detecting the de deadly pneumonia the virus causes early enough that we could be doing more to keep patients off ventilators and alive. We are just beginning to recognize that COVID pneumonia initially causes a form of oxygen deprivation we call silent hypoxia, silent because of its insidious, hard to detect nature. Next piece is pneumonia is an infection of the lungs in which the air sacs fill up with pl 
with fluid or pus. Normally, patients develop chest discomfort, pain with breathing, and other breathing problems. But when COVID pneumonia first strikes, patients don't feel short of breath, even as their oxygen levels fall. And by the time they do, they have an alarmingly low oxygen, they have alarmingly low oxygen levels and moderate to severe pneumonia as seen on chest x-rays. Normal oxygen saturation for persons at sea level is 94 to 100%. COVID pneumonia patients I saw had oxygen saturations as low as 50%. And a little further ahead, he says, to my amazement, most patients I saw said they had been sick for a week or so with fever, cough, upset stomach, and fatigue, but they only became short of breath the day they came to the hospital. Their pneumonia had clearly been going on for days, but by the time they felt they had to go to the hospital, they were often already in critical condition. And this last piece is a vast majority of COVID pneumonia patients I met had remarkably low oxygen saturations as triage, seemingly incompatible with life, but they were using their cell phones as we put them on monitors. Although breathing fast, they had relatively minimal apparent distress despite dangerously low oxygen levels and terrible pneumonia on chest x-rays. Wow. And then he goes on to say that a simple pulse ox, you know, taking the, with a pulse, ox, a pulse oximeter, did I say that right? Uh, pulse ox, Close uh, enough. would show you the, the, blood, uh, the blood oxygen saturation levels uh, way earlier. And his article is targeted at, you know, individuals at home who, you know, could be coming to the hospital earlier had they detected that there was a problem. However, you know, I've seen, you know, I think there's like a debate going on about whether or not people should be doing a pulse ox at home, whether they're reliable enough, you know, the different manufacturers, can people be relied on to read it at home and understand if there's a trend that's falling, you know, I think there's a debate out there about whether or not this should be done at home by, you know, regular people. But, you know, reading this article got me thinking that in nursing homes, many of my clients are already doing this, even though it's not mandated. Um, perhaps it's mandated by certain states, but I don't think it's federally mandated. That uh, you know, many of my clients were taking a pulse ox on every resident twice a day already. Um, that being said, you know, we were able to start studying that that data and see um, you know who has a low oxygen level in a nursing home. Now here you have nursing professionals who are taking the pulse ox every day. And I think it's way more important um, to be monitoring this in a nursing home than at home, because, you know, at home, you know, maybe your doctor would be a better person to take your pulse ox and, and read the reading. But in a nursing home, you really, you know, you don't have the same social distancing that you have at home. I could, uh, you know, quarantine with my family and we're a group of, you know, five people who are isolated from the rest of the world. Um, in a nursing home where you have 100 to 120 patients, everybody knows that this is becoming like the ground zero for the coronavirus. And it's, it's a very uh, difficult setting to manage. You know, and, you, know there's, you could use the PPE and the isolation. There's a lot of measures that people are doing, but I think the most important measure is knowing that you have an outbreak going on way earlier in the game. So we sat down to study this information and we dove into the, what the pulse ox and oxygen numbers are saying. And it was just fascinating that, that what we found is that every building is a little different, but the, the key takeaway is that by measuring the pulse ox of the residents, 
uh, you know, measure, measuring the oxygen saturation level with a pulse ox, we're finding that as much as two weeks earlier, there's clear signs that uh, there's there's an outbreak going on in the facility. Well, uh, so hold on. So first of all, I know you're excited about this, and I'll let you get out <laughs> that whole entire uh, backstory. And uh, this is this is a game changer. So, so let me just try, if you don't mind, um, just to translate that a little bit into plain speak. The, the coronavirus has been a deadly killer in every part of society, and it, it's been extremely painful, tragic, but it's also been extremely frustrating because it makes no sense. You have so many people who have coronavirus, and they know they have, and they tested positive, and they feel fine. They have a little fever, and they're like, you know what? I'm just going to get through this just like I get through every other time I get sick. Normally, I would still go to work, except that work is closed. Right? Maybe I have a little fever. I feel a little body aches, all these other things. You know, my whole family all had the flu this season, and we all kind of pushed our way through it, and that's it, and life goes on. So you have a little bit less of a productive week. But then these people all of a sudden start getting a respiratory challenges, and they're coming in, they can, they're having trouble breathing, they come to the hospital. And these are people that, you know, that were regular part of society moments, hours earlier. And before you know it, they're on a ventilator fighting for their lives in critical condition in the ICU. Many of them, fortunately, do come back. But, but it's, uh, it's the amount of people that just go on and they pass from there. It's crazy. And it's been frustrating that what do you do to ensure that you don't get there? It almost seems like a catch-22. It's impossible. Earlier on, the symptoms don't require hospitalization. They really are minor things. There's no way to know what's going on. How does it be, first of all, clinically, and I'm not a clin, I don't claim to be a clinician, but how does that happen that so quickly it can escalate so dramatically from relatively health, a healthy you know, person, and all of a sudden the person can literally be dead? That's one point. And then the the other point is you forget how you understand it. What do you do about it? So if I understand correctly, what basically what you've discovered through having access to, to data, real live data of what's actually going on in nursing homes, we'll actually talk about that. But let me first just finish my thought and then maybe you tell me how you, you dug in a little bit. But through analyzing the data, you were able to see that there is something that is discernible up to two weeks earlier that you can see their their oxygen levels already going down, not to a point where it's alarming, not to a point where they need to be sent out to the hospital, but you already know that there's a problem. And it's not some in normal times, other sicknesses, probably you wouldn't even, you wouldn't may not do anything to that. You know, you call the doctor on a random Tuesday without coronavirus, you know, someone's saturation levels at a 93, they'll say, okay, you know, uh, or wh- whatever the magic number is. But even those usual healthy numbers can be a problem or, or an early indicator, um, as you said, even up to two weeks. So first of all, how did you find this in the data? Then let's move on to actionable steps by operators to save people. All right. So, I mean, the first thing was after reading this article and getting this idea, you know, it was just a matter of does the data show that? So, you know, we have access to the vital information, the vitals that are in PCC, you know, like I said, we've been monitoring the temperatures and we went to look at uh, those residents that had high temperatures and wanted to see what their oxygen levels falling uh, earlier than those high temperatures. So 
that was definitely the case. And it took us some time and with talking with clients and fine tuning what is the metric that we're trying to look at to detect if there's a problem. So just to get a drop technical of what we did, um, you know, for the people listening at home who might want to, you know, create your own tracking tool for this. Um, if somebody has a temperature above 99.4, that's what we were flagging. I think, you know, that's a pretty simple uh, 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 thing to measure. How many residents do I have with a temperature above 99.4? We took that and we put it on a graph day by day. You know, day one, I have two, next day I have three, four, you know, and how many residents are above 99.4? It's as simple as that, charted day by day on a, you know, on a line chart across the board. The oxygen numbers are a drop more complicated, but, uh, not that much, but basically we're looking at anybody below 94%. And in addition to that, uh, with oxygen, we found, you know, and in talking to some clinical people, we're actually working on uh, sharing this with you know, doctors and making sure that they give their clinical uh, sign off to this, being that we're not clinicians, we're just studying the data. And this is what we're finding. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we, we're, taking each resident and comparing them to each individual resident's baseline. So we'll take, you know, let's say uh, John Doe has a oxygen reading, maybe he has COPD or something, and his normal oxygen level is 92%. You know, average for a healthy adult is, let's say, 96 to 98. Uh, you know, for John Doe, it's 92% because he's got COPD. So we want to take that into account. So we took the, the last 30 days average reading for John Doe before today. We use that as a baseline, and then we want to see how many residents fell more than 1% below their baseline. And like you mentioned earlier, you know, if John Doe was running a 93 and now he's at 91 and a half, that a doctor might look at that and say that's not a, you know, a major cause mm-hmm. of concern. He fluctuates within a range. It's not such a big deal. You know, I'm not concerned about it. But when we took that metric and we, put the, we measured all the residents in the building on that metric, across 100 patients and the first day you have two, three, you know, and then the next day you have 10 and the next day you have 20, you know, even though each one by itself might not be so significant, but now that this this slight drop is happening to 20 people, they're all below 94% and they're all below 1%, you know, more than 1% below their baseline, that's significant. Then we went back to existing outbreaks that that we know happened and we looked at the data and we looked at when did the temperature spike and the thresholds that we used was when did more than 10, 10 residents or more show with this metric. So we went to the temperatures and we found that the temperature spiked uh, to more than 10 residents, usually right before the facility was already having deaths. You know, by that point, when you had 10 or 20 mm-hmm. uh, residents with a temperature, that was already a, a, a significant outbreak was already in progress. So basically it was too late at that point already. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, it's good to look at the data to know, okay, these are my residents who have high temperatures. Maybe these should be the people that we test for COVID, you know, but at that point they're already testing the whole facility for COVID mm-hmm. because it's already, you know, there's already an outbreak going on. And we went back to those facilities. And again, every facility is a little different. I can't explain to you, you know, what some of the other factors might be, but you know, there, there were many facilities we went back and the oxygen numbers showed a problem a week before, two weeks before, where you had that, that similar spike in oxygen 
flagging where these residents' oxygen levels started falling, which is very consistent with what Dr. Levitan wrote in his article, where they have this silent uh, oxygen deprivation problem, uh, hypoxia, that's going on where you know they're they're losing oxygen but they don't feel it yet they're not showing uh, a lot of other outward symptoms now just to tie back into what the the what's been mandated by cms if you look at cms's website or the cdc's website about what it is that they're uh you know what's the protocol for how to monitor a coronavirus patient or in nursing homes and again, I think the states have, might each have individual different, you know, guidelines. But um, the, the guidelines are that you check their temperatures, you look for symptoms such as shortness of breath and cough and things like that. And then at that point, the first time they mentioned taking the oxygen with the pulse ox is once you have someone you suspect who has COVID, that's when you should start taking the pulse ox and monitoring their oxygen. Now, of course, if you have a sick patient who has a respiratory disease, you want to monitor their oxygen level. But I haven't seen from any federal guideline that uh, this pulse ox is meant to be done on routinely on every resident as a preventative measure, you know, to, to test whether or not coronavirus is going on on the facility. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. I think the ultimate answer is once there, I know there's rapid testing that's coming out. I don't think it's widespread yet, but, you know, if they, every patient can be tested with a rapid, uh, you know, coronavirus test you know, every day, let's just say, I don't know if they're going to have enough tests to do that kind of testing. You know, that might be ultimately like the best, uh, you know, way to to monitor. And I think that nursing homes should be prioritized. And I think, you know, there's talk about them being prioritized, being that this is where the old people live and they're in a setting that's not possible to social distance the way you can at home. And, um, and you know, that might be the ultimate answer. But in the, in the interim, until that's, you know, every nursing home has rapid tests that they can do constantly for all their residents. You know, this might be the best tool that you have at your disposal uh, to test that something's going on. And if you can detect that there's an outbreak before anybody's seriously sick, you can do a number of things. You can isolate those residents. You can give them COVID tests. Um, you can do chest x-rays. You could let your doctors know. You could divert your PPE if you don't, if there's a shortage of PPE and you don't have enough PPE, but you have other facilities or you have access to more PPE if you need it, you know, then, then, you know, you will know that this is, this should be a focus area. And, you know, especially if you have multiple facilities and you want to know where to focus your time and to make sure that you're on top of the biggest problem, you know, you can monitor this information and see where do I have residents spiking for oxygen. This is not like a positive COVID test. It's not a proof that each of these residents has a, you know, a, a or will test positive for COVID, but I think it's something worth monitoring and it could be a early sign that's worth, that, that's, that, that, that you should be looking into. Okay, I have like a million questions for you. Right. Uh, <laughs> let me start. For, um, number one is, have you looked at the relationship between residents who have had a significant decline from their base level oxygen and have been negative for coronavirus? So I, we don't have strong data on um, who's tested positive and negative. You know, we do know which buildings have had outbreaks, um, but I don't have individual uh -huh. test results. So it was, it's hard to tie that. It was hard, you know, tie okay, that. Fair enough. And it's now, 
to see this is going on. God, I mean, simply we don't have test results, so you can't just scan someone positive, negative, positive, negative. We're not there yet. Uh, another thing also to to just to factor in here is that we're we're operating with something so serious like coronavirus, and we're virtually operating in the dark because we really have no idea who has it and who doesn't have it. Um, you know, I went to I went shopping yesterday to a large supermarket. Before I went in, there was someone at the door, um, you know, scanning everyone's forehead to see if anyone has a fever. Guy asked me how I'm doing. I'm like, I don't know. You tell me how I'm doing. And uh, I come in. All right. I didn't have a fever. So he let me in. Now, based on what we're discussing today, it's very likely that there are many people that are going right in that are positive. Hopefully not. But, the, the, you know, the fever would be really at the end stage, so to speak, of the of the virus. It could be the incubation period. It could have been a long time earlier, except, you know, really they should say they were to pulse ox instead of taking fever. Does that make sense? I would think so. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a I'm not a, a medical professional. But again, I'm studying the data and I've been following a lot of what doctors have been saying. For example, um, Dr. Scott Gottlieb was interviewed by Ben Shapiro. Um, I think it was last Sunday, and he he asked Ben Shapiro asked him the question of how reliable are temperature checks. You know, you know, and he basically said that you know it's it's definitely a it's 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 a layer you know you could mm -hmm. have different layers of of measuring but i think i think the consensus already is and again you know i i, I just speak about different things that i've come across but mm -hmm. I, I think that it's it's well known already at this point that the temperature checks are a late late in the game people are asymptomatic and contagious uh way before the temperatures are, are going to show anything mm -hmm. so if the way that you're going to catch an outbreak happening or prevent people from coming into a facility is temperature checks. I, I, I think that it's pretty clear at this point that it, it's just ineffective. It might show you, you know, I can't tell you the percentage of people that that, that will flag, but it, it's 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 way after the fact. Well well one thing okay, but at the same time doing temperature temperature checks as opposed to nothing is definitely very beneficial because right. so if you have a strategy of, of how to mitigate coronavirus whether it's in a nursing home or anywhere else and you have limited tools a temperature check is something because if somebody walks in with 101 fever yeah you don't want to let that person in that's a pretty clear sign that they have coronavirus but what if one in ten patients have a fever and the other nine are just contagious and asymptomatic you know so how effective is it so you know, you can you can do a number of things. I think now the strategy has been to date. You know, everybody wears masks and gowns, and and uh, you know, residents are kept in their rooms as much as possible. Um, you monitor very closely for symptoms. If you know that residents have symptoms, you try to isolate them in a different unit. You know, there's there's different things that is a layered approach to how to protect and, and mitigate from widespread uh, coronavirus outbreak. But I think that if you can get a clue that that's going on two weeks in advance, that really changes the game. You know, I, right. I also question that, like, if, if let's say you have a nursing home that's in a state where coronavirus is not yet prevalent, right? And let's just say that they're doing everything right, uh, PPE and, and, and following every single infection control uh, protocol to prevent uh, coronavirus. How crazy are people going to be not to take a mask off their nose, right? But 
if you know that, yeah. hey, this building is suspected that because of these oxygen numbers, we're worried we might have a coronavirus outbreak. We're bringing in our doctors and we're testing patients because we might have an early clue that something might be going on. I, I think, you know, it's hard to ask people to be vigilant 24-7 every single second of the day. It's just not, not going to work. But if you know that there's a problem, you know, and you can you can respond. You can bring your higher level, uh, corporate level resources in to help. You can, you know, make the facility get you know have special attention from whoever it is that that, that that's needed, and you can start uh, managing earlier. Got it. Uh, let's. So two things. First, of all, I want to shift conversation a little bit, but do you, before we even shift the conversation to the individual level. Um, I just want to go back to just make sure that anyone who's who's started listening at this point and on the podcast, they'll be able to hear everything. But those who are listening live, this is massive news. I mean, this is massive news of epic proportions. I mean, up until this point, there literally ha- we have not had any real strategy for actually doing something effective to deal with the coronavirus outbreak, specifically in nursing homes. It's been almost like surrender. And this is nobody's fault. The nursing home operators are saints. The administrators, director of nurses, the nurses, the aides, the housekeepers, maintenance staff in nursing homes. I'm speaking specifically, but in all healthcare settings, they've been literally putting their lives on the line and doing everything that they can correctly to try and deal with this problem. But for the most part, we see that even with everything happening, the coronavirus comes in anyway, somehow with all these checks, with all everything happening. And once it comes in, there's like almost nothing to do. And it literally, literally is killing, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20, uh, a, a very large number of people. Let's not call them nursing home residents. These are grandparents. These are people who have led successful careers. A lot of what we enjoy today, let's just, let's, let's not focus on data for a second. And these are people who have created the world that we live in right now. And it's been crazy that you come into this, the coronavirus comes into a facility and there's like nothing to do. So what Shalom and his team have discovered is literally a game changer. And I'm really, the reason why we're doing this again, like I said, for the third time coming on the podcast, is I really want the message to get out there. And I know that, you know, your team is doing what you need to do to get it out there to the media, but this is, this is real. Through this information, for understanding this very simple and basic uh, conclusion or hypothesis for sure that you can early detection of coronavirus is possible through what carefully monitoring the oxygen levels compared to the person's baseline. And as much as two weeks earlier, there's so much that could be done two weeks earlier for the individual who's affected and for the community that that individual resides, whether it's a nursing home, whether it's assisted living facility, whether it's a regular home, if somebody feels fine, but they are told by their doctor whether or not this doctor you know, is of that opinion, but that they need to be monitoring their oxygen. A lot of telemedicine companies are already you know, taking vitals remotely through all sorts of wearable devices. So this literally can help and show people a much earlier of what's going on and things could happen. I want to just get to my other point. 
um, or like I said, we'll shift the conversation a little bit. Is that uh, before you get into, just want to mention about what you were just saying. Yes. Um, I, I found that a lot of uh, organizations are already doing a daily pulse ox twice a day. Um, I'm not sure, you know, maybe you know some on their own, you know, their own clinical decision to do that. I think some states are mandating that, but I think you know the just the key, the way that we an, analyze this is we're, we're measuring of how many patients are, are hitting the, this metric. And when that number goes above 10, that's when we're flagging that we're assuming there's a problem. So if I have 10 residents that their oxygen fell by more than 1% and the reading is less than 94, um, we're flagging those. So, and we're charting that like day by day. So just to explain very technically how to do the analysis, you know, I just want to speak that out for. So you're saying if someone wants to create a tracker, someone's taking right, some spreadsheet. Excel tool to do this, you know, if that's if that's the method, you know, uh, that you want to do, you can track each resident, establish the baseline over the last, let's just call it 30 days, and that's that's what we're doing, and then take today's reading if it's below 94 and more than one percent below that resident's 30-day average, I flag that resident. If I have more than 10, 10 or more residents flagging, I consider that uh, something significant to take a look at. Got it. So that actually is a segue into, <laughs> into the next part of the conversation. Is I'm trying to figure out now from an individual standpoint. So we're talking on a global standpoint for a nursing home, for an industry, for a community. Let's, let's, if we follow a secret, unidentified coronavirus carrier, from the beginning of someone who even tragically passed already, if we were to find, if we were to look at their symptoms, which apparently you have, right, um, and and we were to see the the oxygen levels going lower than their baseline, is that by itself an indication on an individual level, or it's only when you see ten people, and when you see ten people in a facility, like in other words, if someone's at home and they're taking their pulse ox so we'll we'll leave the anxiety issue on the side and everyone could consult with their therapist <laughs> about whether or not this is good to make yourself crazy with this but assuming someone's doing this and then they say they're they're let's say their baseline is 96 and all of a sudden they're starting to get a bunch of 95s is that reason to be concerned so i'm not a doctor i really don't know on an individual level what a doctor would consider a problem um, and the doctor might look at each of these patients individually and decide that it's not a significant event. I think, you know, what we found by looking at data on an aggregate level is that in, you know, and we look also went back to like the beginning of March before anybody had any coronavirus in their building and nobody was flagging. Uh, you didn't have a, a, a building where you had 10 patients uh, flagging on this metric. Well, wow, that's really important information. Right. So, so don't say, in other words, don't assume that maybe every few weeks this happens and it doesn't mean anything. Right. And, you know, we just started studying this data about a week ago, so I can't tell you with definitive answers. Mm -hmm. I also tell you, every facility is different. There are some facilities where the oxygen didn't really show anything and the temperatures just started to spike without any oxygen. So there are, you know, I, I, I can only have theories about why that may be, you know, but... We found a significant number of buildings, I'd say roughly half, uh, the oxygen was clearly there 
a week or two before where you have residents flagging this way. Now, I think when you're looking at this, when you know that there was an outbreak in the building two weeks later, and you see that these numbers start jumping two weeks before, um, and each individual resident might have only fallen from, let's just say, 95 to 93, but mm -hmm. the fact that that's happening to 25 people at once, I think is clearly significant. Um, what that means for each individual resident isolated at home, I, re I really don't know the answer to that. But in a nursing home setting, no, just going back to Dr. Levitan's article that you mentioned in the beginning, it, it, part of the the process, the disease process of someone who has coronavirus, from I thought, from what I understood, from what you said, was that it almost it's you don't see anything, and then by the time they come in, their body is so compromised that there's very little to do. But if a person was to know, let's say two weeks earlier, before that same person who came in critical condition went to the ICU on a ventilator, if they knew two weeks earlier that they had this, could those symptoms, again, I know you're not a physician, but based on that article, I thought he was saying that that perhaps could be more manageable. Part of the reason why the mortality rate is so high is because people are only seeing it, um, are, are only presenting to the hospital in such critical condition, and there's no indication earlier that they should come to the hospital. I mean, I, I think it could make sense. Again, I just don't know enough on an individual level, you know, what a reading could mean at home. Maybe it could mean a hundred other things. Mm -hmm. I know that in the nursing home setting, you know, that this has clearly shown in the data that when this is happening to 20, 25 people at once, that that, that was the precursor for, uh, to, for an outbreak happening in the facility. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow, this is fascinating. So the bottom line is, if someone's in a nursing home now, um, in the staff of a nursing home, whether you're owner, operator, clinician, whoever, anybody who cares, or you're, anyone who cares and wants to get rid of this, this is something that should be taken seriously. Shalom and his team are doing everything that they can, but whoever, you know, others who are listening, get on board here with this. See what's going on in your facility monitor you know look at the oxygen speak to your physician see if there's something that checks out with your residents and by all means if you if you see something significant see this trend in your facility be concerned you know be be over cautious and be concerned that even though your state your city or you know your company whatever it is has been spared don't you know don't fool yourself and think that this is something which you know for whatever reason is, is not happening and, you know this is something that should be taken very seriously and but I see this as as some sort of a light at the end of the tunnel here, where this this can be the beginning of the end, perhaps of by getting early detection and not allowing cases, at least those which are community based, which that's where a lot of outbreaks are happening. Um, by catching them earlier and not allowing them to fester and to spread, I mean this is definitely a very very good first step. Right, and just to like suggest again, I I would I. I don't know if it's my place to suggest the protocol. Enough of that. You're the data guy. You're not a doctor. Just say what you got to say. <laughs> okay. No, I, I would suggest number one, and I've seen, I see a lot of organizations already doing this, is taking a pulse ox twice a day on every resident. Got That's it. Number two is putting some kind of tracking tool in place to track the, the data that's coming from these pulse ox and to track what are the residents' baseline and are there a number of residents that are falling. Set a threshold of how much you know, how many residents you think is the cause for concern. We use the number 10, but you might have a building that has three or 400 patients where, you know, that's not significant enough because mm -hmm. 
could have 10 people who have across so many residents, you might want to set a higher threshold. But set a threshold of how many residents you're going to look at as a cause for concern and track it day by day of how many I had yesterday, how many do I have today, and each day track that number to see if there's a trend of, of, of oxygen becoming a problem. Amazing, amazing. Well, thank you, Sean, for coming on the Nursing Home Podcast and sharing this discovery with us here. I know this is fresh and it's developing. And as you look further into the data, we'll be able to pull out more actionable um, items. But if anyone, if people want to learn more about you, about your company, or about this discovery, where's the best place for, for them to go? And any parting thoughts before we let you go? Yeah, sure. So you can contact me uh, through LinkedIn, or you can uh, reach out to us through our website, megadatahs.com, and you could send us a message, message through there. And um, okay. that's, that's how to contact us. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for having me on. And uh, I hope that uh, this helps you guys out there. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is something that's, that's worth taking the time to, to, to figure out if you could put such a policy in place in your nursing home and uh, see if this works as a early detection method. And like, like we've said, you know, we've seen this working in nursing homes that are our clients and we're tracking this information for, that, for them. And we have a number of nursing homes now that have, you know, oxygen levels are spiking and, and we're calling that to the attention of our clients and saying, please take a closer look at these buildings. So, you know, I, I think it's worth your time to, I know everybody's really busy, but you know, I think this is this is something that's worth paying attention to. Yeah, this is what they're really busy with. They're really busy dealing with it once it's too late. This is a real opportunity to kind of get ahead of the problem finally, um, assuming that this checks out, which but you have the data to back it. Thank you, Sean, for coming on. Um, get head on over to megadatahs.com to see more about the data work which Sean and his company are doing. This episode now you're watching either on LinkedIn or on Facebook. This will be live as well on the nursinghomepodcast.com. And over there, you'll also be able to check out the other episodes where we had Shalom um, discussing in more general terms of how data can be so beneficial. And most importantly, pulling out actionable items from the data and not just having impressive spreadsheets to say, okay, you know, you know we're doing stuff. Now just to you know to really really like like this and you know, really save people's lives thank you again for coming on i really appreciate it thank you so much. now that you've enjoyed this episode of the nursing home podcast i'd really appreciate if you'd rate this podcast and let everyone else know what an amazing resource this is for those wanting to learn anything and everything about the nursing home industry so head on over to ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Again, ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Leave me a review and let the world know what an amazing show this truly is. Thank you so much for listening and make sure to stay tuned and subscribe so you don't miss any other episodes. <laughs>